Hey everyone. So I noticed there'd been a lot of searches on the topic of self-defense, so I thought it would be a good idea to do a video on the law of self-defense in England and Wales, which I think is a pretty controversial topic. But it's important to note that there isn't one defense of self-defense. There's public defense and private defense, so it's technically two defenses. Public defense relating to prevention or interference with criminal activity, so prevention of crime. Private defense relating to protection of a person or property from harm. So they will often overlap, but they don't necessarily overlap. It's possible to have something which threatens a person or property that isn't criminal. And equally, it's possible to have a crime that doesn't threaten a person or property. And therefore, although in many cases of self-defense, it will be that it's criminal violence being prevented, not always. Under Section 3.1 of the Criminal Law Act 1967, it is permitted to use reasonable force to prevent the commission of a criminal offence or to affect or assist in the arrest of offenders, suspected offenders or fugitives. This is the key principle behind public defence and therefore the defence of self-defence. It's this subsection that both the police and private individuals are able to rely upon, for example, for citizens' arrest. The key part of this is that it prevents crime and enables the arrest of, of criminals, which is the important part of public defence, of course. Falls must also be reasonable in the circumstances, being analysed both objectively and subjectively. The subjective element is that if a defendant is mistaken about the need to defend themselves, the false use must be analysed as if their belief had been correct, i.e. that if they believe their life was in danger, the jury must, or magistrates, must consider their actions in light of the situation as they believed it to be, as in as if their life really had been in danger. The objective element is that the defendant must have used a reasonable level of force according to the notion of reasonable man. Uh, it's a very old-timey phrase, but this was sometimes referred to as a man on the Clapham omnibus, the average man on the street. Essentially, it's what would a jury say? What would an average... What, what would an everyman think of it? The main reason behind using this is a purely subjective element would enable a defendant to simply say that they didn't foresee the risk of something. In this case, they honestly believe that they use a reasonable level of force and therefore they should be acquitted. And that could be used where a very minor argument was used to commit a very violent assault and the person who beat the other within an inch of their life is arguing self-defense. It's obviously, to a reasonable person, that would be completely out of proportion. But if they were able to say that they believed it was reasonable, then a purely subjective test 
would enable them to be acquitted. This can be seen, this relates to the subjective element in the case of Gladstone Williams in 1984. A defendant was convicted of causing ABH, actual bodily harm, when he rushed to the aid of a youth he saw being attacked and struck the assailant. The youth had in fact committed a mugging and the assailant was trying to prevent his escape. In actuality, I think if I remember the case facts correctly, the man who had stopped the mugger had said that he was a police officer, which was untrue. And when Gladstone Williams, the defendant, asked him to produce identification to prove he was a police officer, obviously he wasn't able to do so, which led to Gladstone Williams attacking him, believing he was acting to protect the youth. The conviction was quashed on appeal, however, because according to the belief that the defendant had, he was protecting an innocent party from being assaulted, and if this had been true, it would have been a clear case of the defence of self-defence, and he could therefore rely on self-defence to justify his conduct. Subjectively, in his own opinion, he believed that he needed to act in self-defence, and therefore it was irrelevant that, in truth, he didn't need to. He had an honest belief that he needed to act in self-defence, and that is sufficient for the defence. You've also got the case of Beckford and the Queen from 1988. This was an appeal to the Privy Council from Jamaica. Jamaica at the time, and I still, I think still doesn't, have a superior supreme appellate court of its own. So their cases are appealed to the Privy Council, which is, well at the time it would have been the UK House of Lords, or it's now the Supreme Court, which is the highest appellate court in the United Kingdom. The appellant had been a police officer who'd shot and killed a suspect. He said he believed to be carrying a firearm, and who had fired on him. The trial judge directed the jury that the defendant must have reasonably believed that his life was in danger or would suffer serious harm if he didn't act to defend himself. The jury promptly convicted him of murder, which is a capital offence in Jamaica. I believe it only is a capital offence now if it's aggravated murder, but that's by the by. The Privy Council quashed the conviction on the grounds that the belief in a need to act in self-defence doesn't need to be reasonable, it only needs to be honestly held. If he honestly believed that he was in mortal peril, or others were in mortal peril because the suspect was armed and dangerous, then this subjective belief was how it had to be approached. It didn't matter that he wasn't in real danger, it, it provided that he honestly believed he was, which it appeared Beckford did believe. And then you get the seriously controversial case of Harvey Martin. I strongly suspect British people and American people will fiercely uh, disagree on the outcome of this case. Tony Martin had lived on a dilapidated farmhouse that was prone to break-ins. In 1999 he fired his shotgun at two intruders, one of whom subsequently died from a shotgun wound to his back. It's important that it was to his back because the prosecution argued that the uh, burglar was moving away from him and that he wasn't a threat and this was used as evidence of 
how reasonable the force used was because Tony Martin wasn't in danger at the time and they were therefore arguing that he'd gone beyond an acceptable level of force in firing a shotgun at a retreating person. Martin's plea of self-defense was rejected by the jury, who considered the force used to be unreasonable, potentially due to the previously mentioned wound to the back, and therefore he was convicted of murder. He subsequently appealed on the ground his personality disorder should have been taken into account in deciding whether the force used was reasonable, i.e. that he couldn't reach the standard of a reasonable person because he had a personality disorder, and that should therefore have been taken into account in deciding whether it was objectively reasonable force. The appeal, however, was rejected. The standard, in order to be objective, cannot take into account special characteristics such as a personality disorder. That is the entire point of the objectivity of the test. It can't take into account anything specific or unique to a defendant. However, the conviction was overturned on the grounds of diminished responsibility, which is a partial defence to murder that relegates it to voluntary manslaughter. The main difference being murder has a mandatory life sentence. Manslaughter has a maximum life sentence. And he was given, I think he was given a mental health treatment order. And the custodial sentence, I can't remember, but he'd already served part of it by the time anyway. To then move on to R and Palmer from 1971, which was another Privy Council case, again I think from Jamaica, where Lord Maurice of both E. Guest, uh, any Welsh people who know whether or not I butchered that pronunciation, uh, please don't kill me, cautioned juries that a person in imminent danger cannot be exact in determining how much force is reasonable, in the sense that they have to act in the heat of the moment and make a split-second decision, whereas in court it's obviously going to be debated slowly, it's a much calmer atmosphere, there's no need to make split-second decisions, you're able to weigh the evidence and think about things, there's therefore a risk that a jury will find a defendant guilty because after a great deal of thought they've decided that there were other options available, but in a split-second decision, the defendant may not have even realised that such options were available to them, in which case they should be given the benefit of the doubt, I suppose, is Lord Morris's point. And that if the jury considered the defendant had only done what they honestly and instinctively felt was necessary in the circumstances, that they, it would be very strong evidence that only reasonable defensive action was taken. It's not conclusive, however, only very strong evidence, and a jury is entitled to find otherwise, but they should place, in his opinion, a great deal of emphasis on it. So then we move on to AG Ref number 2 of 1983, a case from 1984. A defendant had been a shopkeeper whose shop had been caught up in extreme riots that had led to damage and looting of his shop, from which he had lost sleep. He'd made petrol bombs to protect himself in case further rioting broke out, and was charged under Explosive Substance Act 1883. His plea of self-defence was accepted, and he was acquitted. The Attorney General referred the case to the Court of Appeal to determine if the judgment was sound law. 
that the Court of Appeal confirmed the case in that the decision was right in law and possessing weapons in preparation to defend yourself from attacks would be valid as self-defense provided that the possession ceases once there is no longer a danger of imminent attack. Lord Lane explicitly stated, however, that a defendant would not be confined solely to the remedies of boarding up his property or calling the police, but he also considered that producing petrol bombs would only be lawful in the most extraordinary circumstances. However, this would be one of them, and preparing to defend himself from a threat which may not actually occur would be valid as self-defense. I should perhaps explain that an Attorney General's reference doesn't affect the outcome of the case. He had been acquitted, and even if the Court of Appeal had decided it wasn't valid self-defense, he still would have been acquitted. It wouldn't have changed it to a conviction. It's a legal device for Attorney General to clarify contentious areas of law. In this case, self-defense and producing uh, weaponry or possession of weaponry in, in preparation of a need to self-defense without an imminent attack. And then you have the case of R and Bird, 1985. The applicant had gone into a physical confrontation with her ex-boyfriend and punched him whilst holding a glass. She argued she'd forgotten she was holding the glass. However, he had lost an eye, and she was therefore charged with GBH. She pleaded self-defence, and the judge directed the jury that in order to plead the defence, she must demonstrate that she didn't wish to fight, as a result of which she was convicted. On appeal, it was held that there was no absolute duty to retreat before resorting to violence in self-defence. A willingness to retreat or an unwillingness to fight will be good evidence that the act was reasonable and good faith self-defence, but this would not be mandatory. There is therefore no requirement to retreat from a physical confrontation before you complete self-defence. However, a person's willingness to do so would be strong evidence that they were acting reasonably and therefore that the force used was reasonable too. Since if they try to retreat and are unable to do so, it's difficult to imagine that they could have done anything else. In RV Keen 2010, defendant had got into an argument with another passenger when the car stopped for petrol. He subsequently became aggressive and pushed the victim, well, not well, a victim to the ground. The driver then approached the defendant who punched him. He is the one that was a driver who suffered the worst injuries, which is why he was treated as a main victim. The defendant argued he thought that the driver was going to attack him and he was therefore acting to protect himself. The trial judge directed that an aggressor or someone who deliberately provoked violence could not rely on a self-defence as a defence, which led to his conviction for GBH, which is grievous bodily harm. On appeal, his conviction was upheld. The court did, however, consider that where the victim reacted in a manner that was so out of proportion to the original aggressor's conduct that the roles had essentially been reversed and the victim had become the aggressor and the aggressor had become a victim that there could be a successful plea of self-defence by the original aggressor. However, this would not be one of those cases. 
and an aggressor is not guaranteed to be able to rely on the defence. In RB Clegg, a private in the British Army was one of a group of, I think, four manning a checkpoint in Northern Ireland as part of counter-terrorism when a vehicle attempted to breach the barricade at high speed. The, the group of four fired 19 bullets, after which the driver and one passenger subsequently died, and upon investigation, it became clear that the car had attempted to drive past quickly because it had been stolen for a joyride, not because there was any terrorism or any threat to the soldiers. At trial, it was determined that of the 19 shots, Clegg had fired four, and that the fourth bullet had been fired as, it was leaving, as the car had been leaving the checkpoint. Clegg was subsequently convicted of murder on the grounds that at the time the fatal shot had been fired, the car had ceased to be a threat because it had gone past the barricade. And therefore, by the time the fatal shot was fired, Clegg no longer could rely on self-defence. His appeal was rejected, but the House of Lords considered that his barrister had made an excellent submission about the merits of introducing uh, excessive self-defence as an extra um, partial defence to a murder charge, which would reduce it to one of manslaughter. Nonetheless, we felt that the change that this in the law that this would entail would be something required to be done only by Parliament, and for constitutional reasons, it was not acceptable for them, i.e. the courts, the judiciary, to change it. As you can expect, this is a very politically controversial case because it, so it manages to straddle the terrorism, army, self-defence and a variety of other politically sensitive issues. If anyone is interested, Clegg was eventually released on licence as a political decision, but eventually his conviction was quashed anyway because it, the evidence that he'd fired the fatal shot was eventually considered flawed. I hope you enjoyed. Please like, share and subscribe. See you soon.